This is a special podcast produced on-site at ShishMed Connections 2023 Annual Conference in Chicago. As we talk with keynote speakers and session leaders direct from the show floor, I'm Bill Klaproth, and with me is Suzanne Hendry, Chief Marketing and Customer Officer at Renown Health, and we have Alan Shoebridge, Associate Vice President, National Communication, Providence, and we're going to talk about a session they did at the AHA Leadership Summit called Strengthening Risk Communications and Mitigating Misinformation in Healthcare Emergency Management. Suzanne and Alan, welcome. Bill, thank you so much for being here today, and we really appreciate your support. Thank you. So happy to join you, Bill. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Alan. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. You're like the best. Anyway, I'm like in the Alan Shoebridge fan club. Me Can too. I say that? Is that yeah. am I allowed Me to too. say that? Yeah. The okay. I need to charge for that. I, you should. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm already. I'm already. You know, I read the blog all the time and all the posts. So anyway, so Alan, let me start with you. Healthcare leaders must be prepared for increasing threats to public safety, and of course. Modern media has created a pressing need to manage misinformation, especially in emergencies where accurate information can be life-saving. So what specific emergency communication plans and processes need to be in place prior to an emergency happening? Yeah, well, you know, the importance of this topic really goes to the fact that if you're not ready to manage that type of situation, you're going to do some serious damage to your brand. So I think it starts with figuring out what type of system you're in? Are you in a multi-hospital system or you know, a single hospital system? You know, it's very different for us at Providence because we have a 50 hospitals across the country and things are happening at the local level and at the system level. And so my job is really helping prepare those local people on the ground with whatever system assets we can. So trying to get some structure in place, trying to make sure they have what they need if something goes wrong. And then they're going to do a lot of the actual response in the local area. So I think you analyze this from what type of system you're at. If you're at, again, a single hospital system, you're going to just be doing it on your own, but you need to build a plan. You need to think about what the scenarios are that you're likely to encounter. As Suzanne will probably say too, so much of what comes up, we don't really know about, but there are things we can prepare for in advance. So one that we've seen that's just going to be happening every single year is wildfires, right? If you're on the West Coast, you're gonna have wildfire somewhere in your geographic footprint anytime during the summers. And I hate to say that, it's sad, but it's gonna happen. We know too that there's unfortunately gonna be a mass shooting somewhere in your geographic footprint, probably over someplace in the course of a year. So the more spread out you are, I think the more you have to really be prepared for those things, but really assessing what your likely risks are, sort of those known risks and building plans that you can. And then just making sure you have the right systems in place in your organization. Some organizations are very sophisticated in their emergency management approach. Others, I think, again, they're just kind of figuring out a little bit ad hoc. So I feel there's a lot of value in just getting all that planning you can for the scenarios you're likely to encounter and making sure that your communications people, your executives are prepared to respond when something happens. Absolutely. So try to understand what scenarios you may encounter in your geographic location. So that totally makes sense. And then, Alan, do you have separate plans for internal and external audiences at Providence? Well, I would say that generally it's part of the same plan, but you have it broken out by audience. So there might be a section of the plan saying, here's what we're going to do internally. And that's a really important audience, especially I'll use the example of Providence. Again, we have people over seven states. If something happens in California, you know, the people in Oregon, Washington, Alaska, a lot of times they want to know what's going on. So we have to figure out not only how do we notify people in the internal audience in the area where something's happening, 
how do we get information out across the system? And one of my roles on my team is making sure that those local people don't get burdened with all these requests coming from outside the area because just it's well-meaning. But people are like, well, how are you responding? How can we help? And so trying to handle that and coordinate that so the local area isn't over besieged. But then at the same point, the external audience is really important as well. And I feel like COVID's really opened my eyes to the fact of how important it is to have this sort of internal, external cadence. And you know, your internal audience needs to know what's going on first. They're gonna be getting asked questions. You don't want them to have the wrong information. And then very quickly, sometimes in a matter of minutes or hours, whatever, you're gonna send the same information out externally. But you have to have it broken down. I think the channels are different, the steps are different, but the audiences go hand in hand. But I would say it's all part of the same plan just really broken out by audience with how you're going to get to reach who you want to reach. Mm -hmm. And then I'm wondering, as I'm hearing you talk about this then, so is misinformation then minimized through already having plans and processes in place? Well, I think you're better to respond to it when it happens. I mean, we kind of know issues that are going to bring people out of the woodwork that are going to spread misinformation. COVID is a great one, right? I mean, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, COVID cases are picking up a little bit. We're going to have a vaccine available soon. Booster, sorry, we already have a vaccine. But the booster is going to come, the latest mm -hmm. booster. And we know when we start promoting the latest booster, we're going to have people who are putting out misinformation. I think we're really well prepared to address that and talk about why these things are safe and have our experts out there. And we've learned from experience, but it's important to put all that messaging together. We're doing that now as we get ahead of this and think about getting our own employees of boosters up to date, helping promote people in the community. So I feel like a plan helps you respond instead of having to just come up with responses in the moment and also identifying, and, and this is something that's helpful too, you know, again, what are your trusted media outlets and people that you can rely on to spread the message? And then others who you might know that, well, what's gonna come from them is gonna be a problem mm -hmm. and let's get ready to manage it. Yeah, that's an important component to remember as well. And then Suzanne, can you tell us about your emergency communication plan at Renown Health and the factors that were taken into account while crafting your plan? Sure. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. And thank you, Alan. Great comments. Well, I would say that like good Girl Scouts, we feel like we always need to be prepared. So as Alan mentioned, it may be any number of internal or external situations, but there's a number of things you can put in place now. And when you envision what happens when the computers don't work, when the cell phone towers are out, when all of the strategic communications methods that we've put in place don't work and you're actually physically using a copy machine to put together newsletters that you're handwriting and you're delivering them to surgeons in the operating room. And some of the things that we dealt with during those first days and weeks of the coronavirus or the wildfires or the climate issues or hurricanes or earthquakes or other things that go, we often think, oh, we'll just text message everyone. We will do all of these things, but we've not spent the time on the infrastructure mm -hmm. to gather everyone's cell phone numbers or their home addresses or heat map in terms of, we have a number of five acute care hospitals. We have patients in our hospitals that we may need to evacuate. We have families we need to talk to. So. What could we do now and put in place in terms of holding statements, microsites that we can build with resources now when it's not wood, a quiet time, because these are things that we'll need to do no matter what. But often 
we wait till the last minute or we're in the middle of a disaster and then systems fail and we're left scrambling. So whatever we can do to prepare now for the eventual certainty of what will be happening is really important. Yeah, and I know Suzanne and I have talked about this too. We talked about the HA Summit, but also identifying who your spokespeople are gonna be. Because in the moment, it's not a good time to figure out, is this person camera ready? Can I deal mm -hmm. with the media? Sometimes you have to do that, but it's better to think about it in advance, really assess their comfort level and ability to do it, and then potentially doing some media training so they're comfortable ahead of when they have to do it. Again, sometimes we press people into action, but it's always better if we can figure out a little bit ahead of time. I love that you brought that up because when you think about plans, you're thinking about the communication, but you're talking about like infrastructure. What happens when the computers don't work? What happens when the cell phone towers are down? What happens if we don't have all of the text numbers? So that makes a lot of sense. And Alan, you as well said, hey, beforehand, let's figure out who our spokesperson is going to be that can effectively communicate the messages we need to communicate. So then Suzanne, when determining how to best respond to varying emergencies, what are some of the initial considerations or strategies that you use at Renown Health to determine the appropriate course of action and or with which audiences to engage? Great question. So the first thing we ask when the sky is falling and people are calling us is, is this our problem to solve? Because many times people will call us when something urgent or critical is happening in the environment and it may not be my problem to solve. So for instance, it could be a member of the medical staff who has done something that's not great. And our folks get whipped up in terms of what's our holding statement going to be? Who's going to be making that statement? What are we going to say internally or externally? And when we dial it back, we're like, you know, this is not our problem to solve. This is our problem to support because that doctor has his or her own doctor's office. They are not employed by us. They are only affiliated with us through their medical staff privileges. So don't react too fast because you need to make sure this is indeed your problem to solve. Often we're in a support role to either our EMS or our REMSA or police or sheriff's office or State Department of Defense or FEMA or someone else. So just making sure whose problem is it to solve? And then are we leading the effort or are we supporting the effort? Most often we're brokers of bringing all the right people to the attention of the media or setting up that press call or conference and making sure that all of the defined audiences are represented. When we think about vulnerable audiences and making sure is there someone there to sign language for hearing impaired? Is there someone who speaks Spanish? 30% of my market are native Spanish speakers. So as we prepare for these urgent communications, are we making sure that everyone is involved in hearing what's critical? Yeah. Wow, I love the detail of that. Really thinking of everything beforehand, it just makes it easier when something does happen. And like Alan said, something is generally gonna happen. So you better be prepared for it. Okay, so then let me ask you this, Suzanne, how do you balance the need for transparent and open communication during emergencies with the potential challenges of managing sensitive or confidential information? Another great question, and I think COVID was a wonderful opportunity for us 
as a senior management team get aligned on how comfortable were we listing the number of patients who are hospitalized every single day, the number of patients on respirators, and it chills me now, but the number of people who had died in our hospitals every day. That is information as public health communicators. We would never have spoken about how many people die on a daily basis in any of our hospitals. But suddenly, we were all giving daily roll call to the media, to our employees, who cared very much about the safety of their environment as they came to work. And we were looking at the analytics and what was wonderful about that transparency is we were able to come together as a country and be able to say what's happening in New Jersey and Texas and Florida and Seattle is now coming to the Midwest and coming to Nevada and other states. So as colleagues, we were able to jump on calls twice a week, I think it was, Alan, and share best practices so that what Alan was dealing with in Seattle, which I knew would be coming to Reno soon, he was able to give us preparation in terms of, oh my goodness, again, what we were dealing with, you know, your morgue may not be large enough to handle all of the people who are passing away in our hospitals. How are you gonna work with that? Here's what we did. So we came together as an industry in a way we've never done before with that transparent information which led to us being a trusted voice, mm -hmm. which I think now the challenge is, how do we take that forward? What have we learned about transparency with the public mm -hmm. and with our employees that we'll take on with the next challenge? Yeah, I think that transparency is important for the misinformation component we were talking about earlier, because I think we wrestle with the, do we list the best too? And that didn't feel good in a lot of ways, but on the other hand, you had people who were disputing the fact that anyone was dying at all. You had people that were saying the hospitals are fine. You know, mm -hmm. look, there's no one in the waiting rooms. They're making this up. And yep. at the same time, our frontline healthcare workers were just distraught by seeing how many people were passing away. So publishing those numbers was tough, but it helped provide the right information when so much misinformation was out there. Yeah. So transparency and data certainly helped with that. It really helped really paint the picture of what was happening across the country. So let's stay with misinformation for a minute, Alan. So social media can be a breeding ground for misinformation. Am I breaking news here? No, I, no. I think I've heard that. No, have you heard that? Okay. <laughs> so then how do you mitigate that while properly utilizing the positive advantages of social media? Yeah, well, I think the, the important role that we have to play is making sure that the right information does get out there so that our experts are out there talking about what really matters. It does in some ways become kind of this shouting match between the misinformation and the right information. But if you're to leave the platforms and not be out there promoting anything, I think you're kind of advocating yeah. your duty to do that. And right now, I think the challenging thing is just always evaluating the platforms and saying, are these platforms still giving us the right exposure? Is the audience still there? It's shifting, you know, like I know that a lot of places are analyzing Twitter. I can't call it X, I still struggle with that. But like, is it still the right platform? And so is it reaching the right people? And you're always having that discernment, but you can't abdicate and not be a voice. You have to put your voice out there. And when things are, a lot of misinformation is going on, I feel like you kind of have to do it more than ever. So we have a role and the role is getting the right information out there, amplifying other trusted voices, you know, when there's expertise from the CDC or others, sharing that, doing what we can with our local health departments. That was a big thing, I think. And 
COVID where local health departments kind of struggled. They were getting information out, but they didn't have large audiences. Well, the health system does. So can we help partner with them in a region or whatever? And just trying to amplify that, get the right message out and amplify it. So there is a role in pushing back. You can't just abdicate yeah. it like you said. Suzanne, your thoughts on social media and misinformation, if I could quickly. Sure. Well, one of the good things that comes out of any emergent situations is that you get the evidence-based specialist who can speak to the fact that there are lots of ways to look at medicine, mm -hmm. but as an academic institution, we only rely on FDA-approved evidence-based medicine. And what we know today is X or Y. Right. And as you remember, all through the pandemic, what we understood about cloth masks then moved into N95s. Mm -hmm. And now there's a lot of discussion. Do masks really do anything to help spread? Mm -hmm. So part of it is to be humble in our approach that we are an academic healthcare institution and we're learning, but we only are going to practice evidence-based, right. peer-tested medicine. That we're not going to be practicing any new treatments or drug regimens on anyone because there's two sides to every story, but at least to be trusted, credible, and respected, accurate, and timely in your approach, even if you haven't gotten everything figured out, and having the right experts at the table to have those discussions mm -hmm. is a wonderful opportunity to educate. Absolutely. Yep, yeah. that makes sense. I was just thinking one other thing based on sense that the mask story is a really good reminder that when you're talking about communications that if you put out something in the first place, it's really hard to pull it back. So trying to have as solid information as you can, because once you get it out there, it's not like you say, oh, we were wrong. People will have a hard time processing this. Well, you told me, that wasn't right. So the masking is a great example because, okay, we all know that N94s and N95 masks are pretty safe. But at the time, people were making masks out of anything. And it was right. so hard to educate them. And the message wasn't just, it became nuanced. It's like, well, not all masks are good. You need this kind. You need to use it the right scenario. And that's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And that credibility piece, if you don't get it right from the beginning, it's very hard to reestablish it. Yep. That totally makes sense. So then let's talk about after the emergency, Suzanne. How do you leverage the experiences and lessons learned from incidents to drive positive change and enhance resilience within your organization and the broader community? Well, we use, like most hospitals, the Health Incident Command System, which is developed by FEMA for all crisis situation and emergencies, which, as you say, Bill, has a feedback loop. So every day at the end of the day, all of the teams that are chartered, including communications, which is the public information officer's realm, and they report directly to the incident commander who makes decisions. At the end of every day, people are reflecting, what did we do well? What could we have done better? At the end of every week, same briefing to go into that. And then once the initial emergency is dealt with or being dealt with, taking away those lessons learned for the next time. Right. And the hope is, just like as human beings, as we get more experiences, we do better. And as healthcare communicators and people who deliver health information to a public, 
who is very thirsty for knowledge, we need to get better. And we only get better by practice and rehearsal and actually going through these crisis situations and then learning together, like this conference is proving today, that when you share best practices that you can go back now take what you've learned and apply it in real life. And that enhances your credibility that Alan was talking about. Thoughts after the emergency, Alan? Yeah, I think that it can be an easy step to skip the debriefing and lessons learned. And that's a fact with not only just crisis situations, but almost any large body of work, you know, nothing ever goes perfect. So it's important to step back and talk about that, but it can be a really easy step to just either gloss over real quickly or sometimes even forget about altogether but it's essential. And I think building that into your process to make sure that's something that you check off is really important. And like Suzanne said, always trying to get better. And And to celebrate, and to celebrate (laughs) those people because any crisis has the opportunity to create new bonds, new relationships, new ways of doing things, and to be able to celebrate what you've created as a team together and be able to recognize that milestone is something that we all will never forget. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice not to repeat mistakes. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like we just had our keynote speaker and he talked about celebrating failure, which I think is actually a good thing. But part of the process is you might not make the same mistake again if you talk about it. Yep. So as we finish up talking about strengthening risk communications and mitigating misinformation in healthcare emergency management, let's get final thoughts from each of you. Suzanne, let's start with you. Anything you'd like to add? Just thank you again, Bill, for being here and bringing this knowledge to a whole new audience who can't be with us in the exhibit hall tonight. Mm -hmm. Really appreciate that. And just a reminder that we often in communications think in concentric circles. So when you're communicating, being able to think about who needs that information first, and then second, and then third, and then building those concentric circles of information, because you talked about transparency, but sometimes it's confusing to give people information without giving them an action to be taken. So often we'll have a lot of physicians who say, oh, we need to say this. Please get on all of your broadcasting and say that. And my team will often say, well, what can people do as a result of hearing that information? If they can't take actionable information to help or support, why don't we just hold on it for Mm -hmm. now? And similar to what Alan said is, there's a real rush to judgment and for people to get ahead of themselves. And I think our job as communicators is to hear all the voices, to be able to put together solid, accurate, timely statements, make sure that we're getting to all of our audiences, but that we're not moving so fast that we have to go and retract what we've Mm -hmm. said. Right, which Alan said is very hard to do. So concentrate on building those concentric circles of information. And Alan, as we wrap up, final thoughts from you. Well, I'm just going to go back to a really silly saying, but it's so true. It's like you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? And if you're making a first impression during a crisis situation and you don't handle it well, you're going to damage your brand. And it could be almost impossible to get those people back interested in your organization, thinking you did the right thing. So think about that brand reputation. And even with existing partners and patients and consumers and all that, if you don't handle it right, you can do serious damage to your brand. So 
I feel like preparing helps cut down the possibility of that a lot. And just thinking about that, if you don't handle it right, you may never get that patient or consumer or partner back in the same way. They're not going to trust you. And so don't take that risk. It's a big risk. Absolutely. I love that. You never get a second chance to make that first impression. Yeah. So important. Well, Alan and Suzanne, thank you so much for your time. This has really been great. Thank, thank you, Bill. You, Bill. Yeah, you bet. Once again, that's Suzanne Hendry and Alan Shoebridge. And sign up for the ShishMed Connections virtual conference, October 20th, 2023, plus on demand through the end of the year. The virtual conference will feature access to 50-plus sessions recorded right here from the in-person conference, plus all new live sessions. All you have to do is go to shishmed.org annual to learn more and to get registered. And make sure you join us at next year's ShishMed Connections 2024. Breaking news, it's in October. It's in Denver. You can say you heard it here first. And of course, if you found this podcast helpful, please share it on all of your social channels. And to access our full podcast library, chock full of goodness and great topics of interest to you, visit shishmed.org slash podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.